0: Up next, Upstate's HealthLink
1: on Air. On this week's program, a Zika virus update. If a woman um, of childbearing age gets Zika um, and the symptoms come and go, um, then there should be no effect in the future um, on any pregnancy.
0: Plus, an integrative approach to diabetes and wellness. We have glucose
2: sensors now. We can see a 24 7 printout of all their
0: sugars, all their glucose levels for the whole week and dealing with that all-too-common problem, ear infections in kids.
3: Feeling a sense of clogging or pressure in the ear is very common. Once the bacteria has kind of started to have its way in the ear, it tends to become painful. Of course, just like any infection, you can start to have fever.
0: We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a piece from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll examine an integrative medicine approach to the diabetes epidemic, plus, common ear infections and what else it can mean to the developing child. But first, Zika is spreading, and it's now in the U.S. What's being done to stop it? Well, the World Health Organization has declared an international health emergency over the spread of the Zika virus, now known to cause devastating birth defects. The agency predicted that the virus would spread from South America to the southern United States by the end of the year, infecting many millions of people. And in late July, Florida officials announced what appeared to be the first locally transmitted cases of Zika infection in the continental United States, and full-scale containment activities have been underway. We'll hear with more on all of this and what is known and not known about the Zika virus is Dr. Mark Polemus. He's Associate Professor of Medicine, Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate Medical University and he's the Director of the Center for Global Health Translational Science. Welcome. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much for coming in Dr. Polimus. Let's begin by helping us understand, get our arms around kind of this
1: whole idea of what exactly is the Zika virus. So uh, Zika It is a virus um, that is transmitted by two types of mosquitoes. Um, It's an emerging infection. So um, there are more cases now than there were in the past. And it also means that we're just now starting to get to know about it. It really raised its head out of Uganda in the late 1940s. Uh, And then the most interesting part is over the last uh, uh, two to three years, we have really seen a massive number of uh, uh, cases expanding.
0: I understand that it started really, as you said, Uganda, so it was mostly prevalent in Africa and Asia, and then only in the last two years, it's now spread to the Western Hemisphere.
1: Correct. So how exactly is it spread? So it's it's um, most commonly spread by the bite of uh, the mosquito that carries the virus. And that
0: mosquito is?
1: The Aedes. Aedes aegypti? Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus.
0: Oh, so there are two different
1: two Aedes, different Aedes mosquitoes. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, but it can also be uh, spread through, uh, uh, through sexual contact with someone who has been infected by the virus. It can probably be spread through uh, blood transfusions if the blood has come from a donor infected by the virus. Uh, and now the most uh, concerning uh, is that it can be uh, spread through sexual transmission. And uh, that was and really unknown before. It was really unknown before. Uh, the one that's carrying the most complications, though, is the, uh, is the ability of uh, spread from a uh, uh, pregnant woman to the fetus.
0: And that's, is that move through the placental barrier? Is that what happens? Correct. Yeah. So basically, just go over a little bit about the transmission, the vector transmission, though, with the mosquito. What exactly happens? So the mosquito's flying around where it lives, and it does what?
1: So a mosquito that has the virus inside it uh, bites a human. Um, so
0: it would have, but how would it have gotten the virus inside it to start with, uh, the mosquito? A
1: mosquito? From, likely from another human.
0: Okay, so it would have bitten someone with the, with the disease, has it
1: inside it, and then goes on to? Goes on to bite the next human. Um, somewhere, um, three to four days later, uh, the, the patient uh, has virus in his blood and becomes symptomatic, uh, and then uh, another mosquito uh, bites that infected person and takes it on uh, to the next one. So basically, what does this disease look like in most
0: people? Let's put aside what we know about all of the potentially devastating birth defects. What, I mean, if if that were not part of the picture, what would the disease look like in most healthy adults?
1: So for the vast majority of people um, who are infected with Zika, they either have no symptoms or they have very mild symptoms. And the symptoms are? The symptoms uh, include um, um, fever, rash, uh, muscle aches, joint aches, uh, red eyes. Kind uh, of a flu-like headache, syndrome. Some flu-like symptoms is what it's often described as.
0: But there are people who don't know they
1: have it. There are, Most of the people. Are
0: asymptomatic completely. Correct. So it's kind of one of these very arcane or kind of under-the-radar kind of problems in a sense.
1: Correct. I think uh, I think the projections are that there are many, many more infections out there. Than we know about from the symptomatic people that present uh, and are evaluated by the disease.
0: How is it determined that you have Zika? Um,
1: there, there's testing that can be done. It's a PCR uh, that tests PCR for, meaning? Uh, polymerase chain reaction. It's a test. Uh, it's a, a blood test. A blood. T- sorry, it's a blood test. Yes, that, uh, um, that that can test for the virus in the blood. But that's you, the only way to know well, that you, you-, you. There are antibody tests that you can you can test to tell you if you if you've recently had it or had it sometime in the past as
3: well.
0: So basically, if you have, again, putting aside the problem with the birth defect at aspect of it, um, do we know if it causes any other long-term problems or sequelae in a otherwise healthy child or adult?
1: So um, probably the most serious complication in an otherwise healthy person is uh, is Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is a uh, which is a um, it affects the neurologic uh, portion of the body, and, and you get uh, a weakness and sometimes paralysis. That lasts? It, it too is usually self limited, so it comes and goes, just like the Zika uh, disease, but there is the potential to have some long standing complications from it. But for the vast majority of people, they either have no symptoms and then they're, they have long standing protection, or they have the symptoms of Zika and they have still long-standing protection. So
0: let's talk about that. Long-standing protection meaning once you've had the disease, you're immune to getting it again. Correct. And is it felt that that's pretty much lifelong immunity?
1: I think the hope is that it's like many other uh, diseases and it's lifelong immunity. Um, However, long-standing is about all we can say right now.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with infectious disease expert Dr. Mark Polimus. We're talking about the latest things that we do and do not know about the Zika virus. So, briefly, where do you find these mosquitoes in the United States?
1: Well, there's been some um, maps that have come out just recently that are currently on the CDC website that uh, shows that uh, actually most of the United States is is uh, possible areas where you can um, where the mosquito. Uh, it interacts with humans. However, um, we have we have you know I- independent local efforts that are that are searching for mosquitoes, and so where they are um, is not as as clear as a, a map that covers you know large portions of the United States. We do know that there are significant populations of the of the vector uh, in densely populated areas in the southern parts of the United States the, that are the Gulf set up. Coast. Mm, yeah. Correct, the Gulf Coast, Florida, Louisiana, and Louisiana, and Texas that those, are set up for disease.
0: Those same um, Aedes aegypti and the other name that you mentioned, those mosquitoes also carry other very concerning, like dengue and, and chikungunya, chikungunya, which yes. is another kind of serious viral infection. So those those same if those mosquitoes could exist in elsewhere in the United States, theoretically we could all be exposed to, I mean throughout the United States, to a lot of these disease entities where we thought they were pretty well localized in the southern
1: portion of this country. That's correct. And actually dengue is a, is a great model. So dengue, um, carried by the same mosquito, has been circulating in Florida um, uh, for three or four years now um so people are getting it just by living in florida and getting bitten by the mosquito without any travel so it was a it was an easy jump to make that the a similar virus carried by that same vector could circulate in florida as well
0: so let's talk about what happens to the fetuses or what we know about these terrible birth defects basically um can it is it most likely to occur in a so it goes from the mother who's got been bitten to directly to the fetus that she's carrying. Um, is it most uh, virulent or most damaging during the first trimester, or can it be, or do we know, for example, what effects it might have beyond that? I know the microcephaly one would think would happen more likely during those very first months when the brain is forming. And well, what 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 is known? That,
1: that's correct. So uh, what is known is that uh, we are learning more every day. That's what that's what's really known. The, uh, the the microcephaly has been the probably the most um, uh, commonly, um, you know, most na- blatant uh, problem uh, anyway. Yeah, most obvious. Um, it, uh, it is probably associated with uh, infection in the first trimester. Um, but what we're finding is that there are likely complications to Zika infection um, if it occurs a- any time in the pregnancy. And uh, we're starting to find that there are um, associations with uh, eye defects and hearing defects and maybe cognitive defects. And uh, longer growth term defects, developmental. Longer term developmental delays uh, that can be associated with uh, the infection at, at, at different times in the pregnancy. So it really
0: it's really very threatening to um, any pregnant mom. I guess the question is do we know if you were uh, a woman of childbearing age and you were to get the Zika infection at some point and were not pregnant, if there is any kind of, um, how long does it last in the body? And could you sometime bear the effects of this, even thinking that, it, it does, in other words, does it go dormant? Does it just live in the body and then kind of wreck havoc later on down the road?
1: Um, if there's a good news uh, story to this, it is the fact that, uh, that the body clears the virus. So if a woman um, of childbearing age gets Zika um, and the symptoms come and go, um, then there should be no effect in the future um, on any pregnancy. The official recommendations are that you wait at least eight weeks from the time you're symptomatic or the time you traveled to an area where you potentially could have gotten the disease, because we know that many of the people are not symptomatic, right? But eight weeks between the time that um, you're exposed or you have symptoms uh, and you become pregnant.
0: How about for, for the partner, let's say in this case, <clears throat> your spouse, your male partner, what have you, if they were to become infected, what do we know about the, the longevity of the disease within, because we talked about it being transmitted via social, sexual contact.
1: So in men, it's a little more complicated. Um, It looks like the semen uh, is the part of the body that that, uh, seems to keep the virus the longest. Um, There's clearly shown um, at least two months in the semen. Uh, There's been a case report of up to six months in the semen. The official recommendations are that uh, a man should protect his partner from pregnancy for at least six months. Um, after he's been symptomatic with the disease. So
0: they've kind of given it somewhat of a wide berth, but there really isn't any definitive um, knowledge as to whether it might in some cases exist longer. That's correct. Oh, okay. So basically there there's a full court press going on for vaccines. What what do we know? What's happening right now?
1: Uh, there's efforts um, in many different sectors of, uh, of the healthcare research uh, uh, Government and non-government. Right, so the Department of Defense is involved, uh, NIH is involved, many, many pharmaceutical partners are involved. Uh, there's many, many different approaches, just like any vaccine effort, uh, to uh, come up with vaccine products. Uh, there's also efforts out there to develop um, um, some some drugs to either prevent disease or to treat disease and to um, uh, some a- uh, a- immunoglobulins uh, that you can use to give to pregnant women.
0: What do you think the containment efforts are doing? Will they be effective in terms of trying to keep these hotspots, so-called hotspots, just that and not have it spread too widely?
1: <sighs> Frankly, I think it's complicated. Um, we have not done a great job um, over the, over time of of, of controlling uh, vectors and vector-borne diseases. However, there is a, as you say, a full-court press, and I think that uh, I think it will have an impact. I think people will be. Um, the number of infections will reduce because of these efforts.
0: Do you think that um, at this point... The, what's basically the best way to protect yourself then? What, do you, what would you recommend to someone? Someone you know, a patient, what have
1: you? Um, the, um, avoid the mosquito and avoid the body fluid that transmits the disease. That's so the,
0: basically use safe sex, so to speak. Not, not, don't contemplate pregnancy. If you're not pregnant, if you are pregnant use all kinds of techniques to maintain, you know, repellents and clear standing water and all of that kind of stuff. Correct. And I
1: think it's important uh, to to say that um, there's no sexual contact that's considered safe. So men who have sex with men, women who have sex with women, men who have sex with women, sex toys are all uh, potential ways that uh, the virus can be transmitted sexually. And of course, anytime you can break the um, bite of the mosquito from the person with uh, long-standing clothes and insect repellents, and if people can do that, they're in complete control of whether or not they get uh, uh, Zika
4: virus.
0: Thank you so much for bringing us up to date. It's obviously a continually changing story, but it's, it's fascinating. And obviously, in your role, I would think it's something that's extremely important to understand in terms of its ramifications, not only for this disease entity, but for other vector-borne diseases. I want to thank you. My guest has been Dr. Mark Polem. Associate Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, and Immunology at Upstate Medical University and the Director of the Center for Global Health and Translational Sciences. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. Coming up next, an integrative medicine approach to the diabetes epidemic. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's health link on air, linda cohen along with you well diabetes numbers have grown in this country where almost 30 million patients now have the disease and treatment for this debilitating disease is best when it addresses the whole patient and not just their disease. Here with more on this approach is Dr. Barbara Feuerstein. She's Associate Professor of Medicine, specializing in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at Upstate Chazin Center and the Veterans Administration Hospital here in Syracuse. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for coming in. Nice to be here, Linda. So diabetes is growing in this country, and it seems like it's almost at epidemic proportions. Help us understand why that is. People who have type 2
2: diabetes uh, are 90% of the population. Type 1 people, type 1 uh, diabetes is 10%. You're talking about uh, the people who have, who have diabetes in this country. So right. what does that mean? So of the people who have type 2, 80% are also obese. So that is related to the obesity epidemic in America. Type 1 is also on the rise, but for other reasons, type 1 patients are not related to obesity.
0: Let's explain just for the view, the of quickly the difference type one you're fully and totally insulin dependent exactly and often does it, it begin in
2: childhood so type one is an autoimmune process and the antibodies that develop in the person actually attack the pancreas so that it doesn't work anymore so if a person does not take insulin they would die Somebody with type 2, their insulin often is at a high level. Their pancreas is trying to keep up with the extra weight. They are insulin resistant. The insulin is not getting into the cells properly. So they often can take oral agents for a long time, they can change their lifestyle, and sometimes the type 2 diabetes can go away. But often people who have type 2, after years of it, the insulin resistance is so drastic that they do need to take extra insulin. And we can see now there are all sorts of new insulins on the market that are super concentrated. Usually we use U100 insulin, which is 100 units per ml. Now we're using U500 insulin. So that's to overcome the insulin resistance
0: that we're seeing so much now. But the fact is, the fact that it's growing, you're suggesting for the majority of people in this country with diabetes, the majority, it's because of the type 2 and a large number of those is because of the growing Obesity yes. epidemic. Related to lifestyle. Even children. Isn't yes. It also growing? Children. It's in children. an epidemic in children related to obesity increase. So treating diabetes effectively, you, I know you, you're a strong advocate and from your experience, one has to really treat the whole patient. It I agree. It isn't just a matter of treating the disease entity. So what does that mean though to treat the whole patient in your mind? I mean, what do, you, what do, what do we mean when we say that? So often patients come to us thinking we're going to cure them.
2: It's in our hands that we can give them a pill and take care of it. But it's much more than just taking a pill. The, a big part of all of this is their lifestyle. And unless people make changes in their lifestyle, the pills cannot take care of the disease
0: process. So a lot of it is really taking responsibility for your life, for your disease, and making changes that, that are necessary. Exactly. Exactly. The pills can only do so much. So I know that it's o- often talked about this whole notion of an integrative approach. To treating diabetes. Explain that. So integrative medicine has been around for a long
2: time. People used to call it alternative medicine, which meant what can we do instead of traditional medicine? That's the old days, alternative medicine. Then we got complementary medicine, which was saying how can we complement conventional medicine with other modalities. So now, integrative medicine is trying to do all of it, trying to say what can we do to complement, and maybe things that are outside of the usual scope of conventional medicine, and trying to take all kinds of practitioners to help
0: the person. So, in other words, an integrative approach will address lifestyle, but also things like stress reduction, how you manage food, things like exercise, and even things like spirituality.
2: Even spirituality, that's the big one. Yeah. So, integrative approaches will traditionally take, you know, maybe uh, ask somebody to see an acupuncturist if they're having pain, or for stress reduction, maybe to go to a yoga class to help with exercise, meditation. Um, we have all sorts of um, apps for meditation now, which I can talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, tra- you know, Chinese medicine, traditional herbs, Tai Chi, anything that will help the person that maybe in conventional medicine was not thought about before. So we're looking um, just for new ideas because it's so hard to help the person just with the approaches that
0: we've been using. Often it's not successful. So it's wide and broad and really wide-ranging and also all-inclusive in terms of really looking at other tried-and-true methodologies outside of basically what was considered conventional treatment.
2: Right. So the JASM, we've always used the team
0: approach, which you
2: could say is an integrative approach because we've always used diabetes educators, dietitians. We have a physical therapist, the eye doctors. The, we have a social worker. We have psychologists. So that is pretty much an integrative approach to begin with. That's the team
0: approach. Because, but, but that, excuse me for interrupting, but that's, 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 a, still, that's still more on the medicine side, meaning more of the conventional approaches, but you've mentioned already things that are really kind of outside of that. Exactly. So the things that we're trying to add
2: to all of that are even essential oils, um, uh there's different um is massage therapy also something that might be considered would also be considered uh paying more attention to spirituality as you said how whatever that spirituality would be for an individual person um even ayurvedic herbs and ayurvedic approaches there are practitioners who do
0: just that and is that something as part of what i mean is that something that is standardly offered within the Joslin program to Not standard. So that's
2: what we're trying to change now. So in September, we uh, had our first integrative medicine approach for people with type 2. And then in January, we had our second group for people with type 1. And the people who came were really excited about it. And I think it helped them a lot. And then in September, we're having a meeting for integrative approaches to diabetes at Community General. And
0: that will be advertised, so I hope that people make it there. And the idea is that they come to get an orientation to what's offered, and then is there an ongoing interaction with them, a program that they get involved yes, in? Yes, and we
2: also will hook them up to all the resources in our community, and there are a lot. So we have a list of different practitioners, including the massage therapist, mindfulness-based stress reduction practitioners, Ayurvedic people, um... All sorts of approaches that normally we hadn't been talking about, but I think will
0: be increasingly helpful. popular, for increasingly one. popular, and helpful. Yes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with endocrinologist Dr. Barbara Forerstein, and we're talking about an integrative approach to diabetes and wellness. So patient education clearly is the key here, and a sense of responsibility, taking responsibility for their lives, but. What do you think, the, in, in your experience, has, is the most profound lifestyle change that someone with type, especially type 2 diabetes, but any type of diabetes, what's the most profound lifestyle change someone can make or does make? In my opinion, diet.
2: And I don't want to call it diet because it's not about going on a diet. It's about changing your attitude to food. And we have glucose sensors now where people can wear a sensor and it gives us, when they download it in in the office, we can see a 24-7 printout of all their sugars, all their glucose levels for the whole week, two weeks. In the past, all we had were glucose meters and the meter would show each time the person checked their blood sugar, what it was, so maybe someone texts twice a day, maybe 10 times a day, but we never know how, knew how to connect the dots. Now with the sensors that people are wearing, we see how to connect the dots and we're seeing things we never knew were happening before. So what before. have you learned? So what I've learned is when I see what happens after people eat food that they think is not making their blood sugar go as high, now we see it is. how high it's really going. And I've had many patients who will sometimes be on a more restricted diet with carbohydrate intake, mostly grains. And when they have the download for that, their blood sugars are extremely erratic. They'll have high blood sugars almost all the time after they eat. But when they are eating much more carefully, not eating as much grain, especially gluten, their blood sugars are much more
0: stable. So what it's done, what you're saying is obviously changing diet is crucial in maintaining their blood sugar at the right level. But in addition, some of the technology now that's available is also informing you.
2: The new technology is amazing and it's opened our eyes to what's going on much more than we ever knew in the past.
0: Is there a real effort to help individuals, not only in terms of, you know, the kinds of foods to eat, but also this, as you said, the approach to food, this whole notion of mindful eating.
2: Mindful eating is where it's at, because you probably remember The Biggest Loser, that whole big article that came out maybe in May, and... There was an article that was written after it saying that, as we know, diets don't usually work, right? That's why we have this problem here.
0: There's this up and down constantly. People who diet, gain, lose, gain, lose. So the
2: people with the biggest loser years later, a lot of them have gained their weight back. And a lot of that is metabolic changes, which makes it really hard to keep the weight off.
0: But the idea is that if they have mindful approach to food, that somehow changes first of all, their relationship to eating, but also how does it change what their actual intake is or what they may choose to eat?
2: It has been something that really has been shown to help. And that's where I'm going to be taking my practice more in trying to help people to change their approach mentally to what they're eating so that they're actually thinking about what they're eating, paying attention to it. And a big thing is to only eat, not to be doing 5 million other things, which is so difficult.
0: Especially in this world. (laughs) And I
2: just saw a patient last week at the VA who was so upset because she can't lose weight. She came to me trying to think of something that would help her. She feels like she's not eating too much. She feels like she's exercising and the weight won't come off. And in her mind, she was doing everything perfectly. But then I finally found one thing, because I just read this article about the mindful eating. And I said, well, where are you eating your meals? Always at her desk. Every meal is at her desk. While she's working. While she's working. So there's no consciousness. And she had the light bulb moment, and her eyes opened. She said, maybe that's it. I'm actually eating more than I think, because I'm not paying attention whenever I'm eating.
0: So just to recap, mindful eating, just for people who may not know what that means, is that you really... Take the time. You focus on what you're eating. You, you taste what you're eating. You slow down, and you make a conscious effort to think only about eating. As opposed to that, you have to do the laundry, or you have to finish this task, or you have to, or you're you're actually doing tasks at the same time.
2: Exactly to detach from the screens, not watch TV, not be on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever people are doing,
0: and it, and very um, kind of unconsciously putting food in your mouth, not realizing even if you're full, you don't even have a sense of your own satiety at that point. Right, very important. In the little bit of time we have left. What's the takeaway then in terms of the bottom line, if you were to say, you know, that you would want your patients to know at this point, people with diabetes, in terms of this whole integrative approach, what would your advice be?
2: I think number one is that nobody wants diabetes. Everybody would get rid of it. It's a disease that there's no holiday from. And it's very hard because you can't take a break. If people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they feel guilty about it. So I try to tell patients like that, Nike, had, just do it. Because if you don't just do it, you feel guilty that you're not checking your blood sugars or taking your medicine or doing your exercise. So if people can actually get themselves to do what they're supposed to, and what they've been prescribed, the stress level goes down and stress only makes the diabetes worse.
0: So bottom line is, You have to take responsibility, you have to follow the prescriptions, you have to do what you need to do, and you basically have a lot now, a large, much larger range of of assistance out there with all the different integrative things available. Yes, we
2: are here to help you with the Joslyn, and we know where to refer you if... We don't have the services that may help you. There's lots of people in the community that can help you.
0: Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Barbara Feuerstein. She's Associate Professor of Medicine, specializing in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at Upstate's Joslin Center and the VA Hospital in Syracuse. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
5: Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Peekaboo. Well, folks, one of the things I really love is playing peekaboo with babies and toddlers on a bus, train, plane, with a little person a row or two in front, curiously gazing in my direction, or in mom or dad's arms in the supermarket, or on an elevator, or wherever. Big mistake, baby. (laughs) Peek-a-boo. Then, watching them wonder, What is this guy doing? I don't even know him. And then usually shyly hiding behind mom or dad's neck, perhaps never to be eyeball to eyeball again, but often, joyfully often, carefully sneaking another peek, hiding again, then peeking, me peek back, then the blissful sunburst smile and hopefully that wonderful whole body squiggly squirm pure pleasure squirmy joy for two please <laughs> now lately i've been exploring something similar with fellow grown-ups not exactly peekaboo but same goal funaboo what have i discovered No simple eyes-behind-fingers recipe yet, but it often involves a bit of risk. Talking to someone you usually wouldn't, perhaps about something you usually don't, always positive with a dash of humor or appreciation about the real and now. Like on the phone with some company's nice phone person, I said, You've been helpful and friendly. I like both. Tell your boss a happy customer said you deserve a raise. <laughs> or great hat to the brave one strolling by in fedorial sartorial splendor. Or to the young man I asked for directions who as he turned to look at me I saw sported a waxy wispy pin pointy handlebar mustache. Cool stash, man. And then, playful fun, right back at me. Thanks, a raise would be great. I'll play her the tape. And great hat yourself, dude. And plain old thanks. All three with that wonderful, always delightful thing called a smile. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Dr. Richonian.
0: Up the common ear infection and what else it can mean for the developing child. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, after the common cold, ear infections are the most frequently diagnosed childhood illness in the United States. Most kids will have at least one ear infection by the time they're three years old, but adults can suffer from these as well. Joining us with more on this common ailment is Dr. Heidi Marzuk. She's Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Marzouk. Thanks so much for coming in.
3: Thank you for having me. So while it's common,
0: help us understand exactly what is an ear infection.
3: Sure. An ear infection in the acute sense typically um, is where between your eardrum and where your ear kind of drains into your nose, there develops a collection of fluid. But not only is the fluid there, it becomes infected with likely a bacterial infection. Um, There are Uh, otitis media, where it's not an acute infection, where the fluid's just sitting there, but it has yet to be infected. So when we think about an ear infection in the acute sense, it's when that fluid has been invaded by a bacterial source. Is it always bacterial or may it also be a viral source? It can be viral, but often uh, when we think about it, especially in the pediatric sense, uh, when they become painful and such, more commonly than not, they are bacterial.
0: So who is most likely to get these and, and why is it that?
3: Sure, so typically when you think of an ear infection, you think of a toddler. Um, in that uh, anywhere from one to three-year-old period. Uh, Children at that age have eustachian tubes, which is the tube that connects the ear to the nose to equalize pressure and drain fluid. Uh, It tends to be in a more horizontal direction uh, during that age period. And so the drainage pathway is not as smooth as children grow that tube has a more vertical orientation and so they're better able to equalize pressure and so those infections become less common so those children are the most at risk and and that's that's very very interesting i've never heard it described quite that way so the the eustachian tube being
0: maybe smaller and more horizontal really kind of leads them to have more fluid backup or build up and then Correct. infection can kind of wreak havoc in that area very mm-hmm. interesting so how do you know you have one? I mean, how? How? what are the kinds of symptoms? You alluded to pain before. Tell mm-hmm. us more about that.
3: Sure. So uh, feeling a sense of clogging or pressure in the ear is very common. Once the bacteria has kind of started to have its way in the ear, it tends to become painful, uh, tender. Some kids do have some sound sensitivity. Of course, just like any infection, you can start to have fever. Um, once the infection starts to become... Uh, more advanced. Some kids can have a little bit of imbalance if the infection is uh, in one side versus a symmetric infection.
0: So may you see yeah. a kid tugging on their ear Absolutely. kind of thing? Is that a common yeah. thing? And, and that's a maybe sign they're uncomfortable. More irritable perhaps? Sure. Yeah. And And do you see
3: drainage very often? Drainage is a possibility. It's considered a complication of the ear infection when the pressure has built up so Uh, incredibly that the eardrum makes a small hole to release the fluid.
0: Okay I want to talk Mm -hmm. more about the complications in a minute Mm -hmm. but so those are the kinds of things you see in kids maybe the loss of appetite just a general kind of crankiness pulling on the ear. How about in adults? I mean is it different in adults? I mean obviously adult can tell you that they're yeah. that they're hurting and mm-hmm. and they can be more conscious kind of of what the symptomatology is. But okay. it, is, are the symptoms very different?
3: No, they're not actually. Uh, they're more rare to happen. And so, when an adult has hearing loss or ear pain, we also you know examine the ear and kind of keep in mind some other etiologies just because it's less common in adults. Um, but the symptoms are fairly similar with pain. Hearing loss, other upper respiratory symptoms, usually concomitantly, uh, and fever. Like a cold. Like I guess my question is, if you have a cold, yeah, uh, not necessarily cold,
0: an allergy. Let's say yes. you're a very allergic person, mm-hmm. either as a toddler or as an adult. Sure. Would you have more tendency then to build up the fluid in that middle ear compartment, correct. but That's not correct. necessarily go on to an infection? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, but the infection obviously is when it needs to some, often needs some attention. Sure. Um, so basically you mentioned the role of the eustachian tubes. People always talk about the adenoids. Is there some
3: issue with the adenoids as well? So the adenoids sit kind of sandwiched between the two eustachian tubes in the back of the nose. So oftentimes if the adenoids are large or the adenoids themselves are harboring an infection, it can influence the middle ear space, but not always.
0: So basically what I'm gathering is that risk factors for near infection quite often have to do with the age of the person, as you mentioned before, with the anatomy of a toddler. Mm -hmm. But are there other issues, for example, In a young child is the way they're being fed. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that nursing babies are less apt, for example, to get an ear infection than a bottle-fed baby. Now, why would that be?
3: So, uh, in general, when uh, children are breastfed, we tend to favor that method of feeding for for the immune system. Because when uh, a baby is nursed with breast milk, the baby is uh, receiving antibodies from the mother. Um, Also, there is some discussion about shapes of the nipples and things like that in terms of palate development. Um, but, uh, typically you are getting some immune boost if you're receiving breast milk. So that's
0: milk. largely, the, that would be the explanation for the difference. And
3: typically children are usually nursed when they're in the first year of life. Again, after that, they're typically receiving milk and they're still going to be prone to ear infections.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with otolaryngologist Dr. Heidi Marzouk. We're talking about otitis media or ear infections, actually. So basically, um... It seems to me that most ear infections don't necessarily cause a long-term complication, but there are some that do. Mm-hmm. Help us understand if they are if they're frequent or persistent, what are the potential complications?
3: So, Firstly, you know, let's keep in mind that most kids do get ear infections. It is common. It's almost expected that a kid will get one. The problem is if it's recurrent, severe ear infections, there can be potential complications. Obviously, the ear is close to the brain. That's a very serious complication.
0: Meaning Uh, what? What would happen? So
3: if an ear infection becomes extremely severe uh, and left untreated, it does have potential implications to spread towards the brain. So but this is in a most extreme sense.
0: Yes, yeah, so th- I know something like mastoiditis mm-hmm. is a part of the bone behind the ear sure. can become infected. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the brain, mm-hmm. you can get a meningitis Correct. If, if it's untreated.
3: Correct. And these in, are, again, in the most Rare. severe terms of cases. We do hear of children who get very high fevers with ear infections and febrile seizures are... Um, potential. Perforation, we discussed. If you have one perforation, chances are it'll heal, but there are perforations that don't. And several perforations, again, cause repeated trauma to the eardrum. So let's talk about that just for a second. So
0: basically you've got the middle ear which Mm -hmm. is behind the eardrum Mm -hmm. and before it goes into the inner ear which Mm -hmm. is basically goes up to the brain. Mm -hmm. So in that little compartment I know there's three little bones correct? and they help to transmit the sound Mm -hmm. but when the pressure builds up in there sometimes spontaneously there'll be a little kind of as you said a perforation Mm -hmm. Is there any consequence to that, other than the fact that it allows the, the uh, fluid to drain?
3: So most of the time, the vast majority of the time, after the ear infection is treated, the perforation does heal, and there's minimal sequela. However, um, there minimal are... Complications minimal following complications following Minimal complications following that. However, there are cases if the perforation doesn't heal, the ear can drain. Uh, implications on hearing loss really with, you know, severe infections that are more long-standing and untreated. Sometimes you can get some scarring on in the middle ear bones and things of that nature.
0: Which would impede hearing.
3: Correct. The thing that we didn't talk about is you have this uh, 18-month-old to three-year-old who's exploring the world around them trying to walk, talk, and speak, right? And then every six weeks or so they're having trouble hearing. And so one thing that I really keep in mind in the office when I'm making certain decisions is how is the speech doing?
0: So there's a direct correlation, and I think that needs to be underscored, mm-hmm. and you just did, mm-hmm. between if someone is having freq- a child is having frequent ear infections during that very critical language development period, and their hearing is intermittently affected, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they may actually be somewhat delayed then in their speech and language development. Well,
3: the idea is there's a buildup of fluid. We, assume based on that that there's going to be some hearing loss. Now the question is, in between the infections, is the fluid clearing or not? Um, and is that going to affect hearing or not? Again, if they're a small amount and it's intermittent, that's par for the course of toddlerhood. But once we get to an excessive amount, and we'll talk about what is excessive, um, Uh, it can start to have implications on speech development, especially if the fluid itself, even though it's disinfected, is not clearing in between infections.
0: So the question I think you must hear a million times a day is, Mm -hmm. does every ear infection need an antibiotic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the answer?
3: (laughs) So the answer is no. Not every time you pick up fluid in the ear or there's some mild infection does it need an antibiotic. And the nice thing is the American Academy of Pediatrics has come up with some guidelines for your local pediatrician as to when it might be a good idea to definitely give versus wait and see prescriptions versus kind of just wait and ride the, the wave. So obviously the things that present as more severe high fever severe pain, very bulging eardrum on exam, you kind of probably want to give antibiotics right off the bat for those. However, the, and especially in that six to two year old, six month to two year old mark, above that we can even wait, you know, sometimes wait a little longer for those moderate infections. What's
0: the rationale for waiting or what's the rationale for not treating?
3: So the idea is antibiotics also are not a super benign thing either, right? Uh, they have implications on the belly. I Sometimes I get mothers who complain about the diaper rash from the antibiotics more than they do from the ear infections, right? So, um, you know, after they the kids have the diarrhea. So they're not a benign thing. And the whole idea is we want to be judicious in our use of them in terms of community antibiotic resistance, in terms of affecting the rest of the body with those antibiotic treatments. So um, we want to be judicious. Obviously, we want to take care of the kids' discomfort. We want to manage it, but we want, don't want to overdo it. And that's the fine balance that we're finding as a a community of physicians over time. uh, I think that's become much
0: more, there's been a much greater consciousness about not just knee-jerk reaction treating with antibiotics in children, but also in adults, for the very reason you stated that Mm -hmm. we found that there's much more resistance to the antibiotic a regimen that we have because the bugs keep changing and if we keep using those antibiotics mm-hmm. indiscriminately or too too liberally mm-hmm. that then they they cease to be as effective sure. so we have to watch
3: and the effect so- of antibiotics on the rest of your body too
0: very little time we have left. Mm-hmm. Basically, how many ear infections is too many, and what do you do if your ha- child has a lot? Just tell us really briefly about a myringotomy.
3: Sure. So uh, the question, you know, when kids come in is, why are we getting a myringotomy? So typically we say... Which f- is what, a myringotomy uh, So it's a small nick in the eardrum where we suck out any fluid, and then we put in uh, a small few millimeter tubes straddling the eardrum to keep it open. And basically we say, you know, if there's six infections in a year, more than four infections in a six-month period, or fluid that's not clearing for more than three months that makes us worry about speech development and such, those are the the general guidelines that made me lean towards considering a myringotomy and tube treatment. And basically, it stays in for how long? Uh, it varies depending on what kind of tube you put in, but most of them are temporary, lasting 6 to 18 months. And they fall out in the
0: eardrum heels, and you go on from
3: there. Most of the time, yes. Such important information. Thanks so
0: much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Heidi Marzouk. She's Assistant Professor of otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda and You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Adolescence can be fraught with cruelty, misunderstanding, sadness. How good it is to remember those who try to help, who see in others the yearning to belong. First, I will read poet Lisa Messerol's poem, Mr. Black and Mr. Schmidt, followed by K. B. Kincer's poem for my brother who asked Anne Botanz to dance. Mr. Block and Mr. Schmidt. They moved our class's locker's junior year and no one else's, giving me perch beside Mr. Block's door, an earth science teacher with a silver beard and a jingling pocket of coins, who greeted my days with a winner's fist and a personalized nickname, holding the pose with twinkling eyes until I smiled fortified by natural light for walking the halls betrayed by sisterhood, but true to myself, mostly unseen. A decade later, in another school on another continent, one of my middle school students, his body bent over with the weight of knowledge, entered and exited my classroom three times a day, morning before lunch, afternoon, hello and goodbye each time, always my name, no eye contact, just marching in and out with his French horn, raising his hand, his sing-song buoying me in the grieving drifts of lost health. Mr. Block and Mr. Schmidt, I didn't call you this then, but somewhere now someone does. More than another decade later, your voices still come to me like spring rain on broken earth. And the second poem, is by K.B. Kintzer from Georgia for My Brother Who Asked Anne Brown to Dance, dedicated to Lawrence Bennett and his dates, March, 1955, February, 2013. Her cooties were legend, even in my grade. Always walking alone, hair matted against a snot-crusted nose, Anne's smudged and wrinkled clothes hung on her pale frame like the sail on a skiff in the doldrums. We all feared gym class, boys facing girls in a lineup, plotting strategy, making eye contact, then the mad dash to ask someone before it was too late, before they were stuck with Ann Brown. But girls outnumbered boys, so no boy was ever stuck with Ann Brown. Now in uniform, he leaves his wife and daughter every day to face pushers, murderers, and thieves to try to save us from ourselves, like then, when he wore his cousin's too tight shirt, shoes, and jeans to cross the gym's flat but shining sea. Thank you for
0: joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore finding your path to total wellness. We'll explore the local perspective on the cancer moonshot. Plus, we'll have some lessons from a missionary nurse. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.